share with the community. Share with the community. Uh, what did you What did you talk about? What are you seeing? We've got one over here. One of the um, biggest things that always confused me about this this passage is, first of all, you have the Jews asking Jesus, you know, basically a religious question, like, "Are you the Are you the Son of God?" And Jesus basically tells them, like, "If that's what you think, if, if that's what you say," and they get all bent out of shape. But then when he goes to Pilate, and it becomes a, a sort of a, a political accusation, are you, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers the same exact way, like, well, if that's what you say. And Pilate, and Pilate kind of just brushes it off. It's like, oh, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. So that just really confuses me. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of layers going on here, religiously and politically. I mean, the, the, obviously the Jewish people are under Roman authority and Roman oppression, and Pilate would be... Uh, uh, a like a Roman installed governor over this this kind of geographic area over these people, but what Rome does, which actually isn't the case with other like other op uh, oppressive forces like Persia or Babylon before them, what what Rome does is actually extends them a level of self governance, and actually honors their some of their own systems of uh, religious and political governance. And so what they're saying is, is Jesus is breaking our laws by, by claiming to be the Messiah, which, as you mentioned, even in their own questioning, he just keeps saying, yeah, you said that. And they're like, ah, I heard it from his own lips, but he didn't technically admit it. I mean, what he's doing there is he's just saying, you know what you want to do here, just do it. I'm not actually going to be complicit in your game here. You know what you want to do, go ahead and do it. And, but they actually can't give the death penalty without a Roman stamp of approval. They're restricted from doing that. So that's why they immediately send him on to Pilate to, to figure this out. Like, and, and you'll notice when they send him to Pilate, what do they do? They start to paint the narrative in very political terms, don't they? He's inciting the people. He doesn't want us to pay taxes to Caesar. And he didn't say that. Uh, uh, he, they, and they, they, they issue the term king. They say they, he says he's the Messiah, the king. They say he's the king. So they start to actually paint the narrative in a way that Pilate would care about. And they start to try to twist his arm a little bit. Uh, it's very insidious what they're doing here. Very insidious. Yeah. Is uh, the mic runner allowed to yes. give an observation? <laughs> yes, yes, Nishu. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I've been doing mission for quite a while now, and I remember this one time where I was discipling this dude, and he was, unquote, Christian. And the only reason he was in community with me is he wanted to get to know me. And so after just a course of a month or two, his judgment for me was, I remember in a conversation, he was like, man, I don't think you're Christian. And in that moment, Man, I was filled with so much anger. I wanted to slap him like, right there. I was like, wow, like you're passing this accusation and on me. Right. Like, and there's something special here in the passage about like Jesus, you know, and his character. Yes. Um, of, I don't know, man. It's in his non-reaction. Yeah. There, he has so much authority. Right. About who he is and like right. what he represents. That's right. And it's like so opposite of, us. I know when you're like in the mission field and you and you're reaching out to people, 
people will label you and people will come after you. Yeah. And it's like, for me, that's always that struggle to always be in a place where I feel like I have to defend myself. And there's something so special, something very visual going on here about Jesus and him being accused and him just having so much freedom and in who he is. Yes. I don't know. Yes. It really fills me up. Yes. Anybody else take note of like, like the, like you said, the freedom to not defend himself and almost feel drawn to that. And, and, and then even start to wrestle with where, like, uh, where are the lines or the guardrails of doing that? Should there be moments where I do defend myself? Should I never defend myself? Um, Jeremy kind of put me on this, this, uh, this book and a, and a particular leader in this book, um, St. Teresa of Avila. And she, um, she actually writes in this book about how she actually thinks this story and then a few other texts create a, found, a biblical foundation for never defending yourself. And she says this in a couple places. She says, because Jesus was hated and abused and reveled and because the saints did not advance in church history, except through being despised, we cannot expect to advance unless we follow in their footsteps. And she says that Christians should almost never defend themselves, even from false accusation. And her, she's got like six principles behind why we should not do that. Uh, and I'm going to leave it up to you to wrestle with this, actually. I'm not going to like tell you what to do or not to do. But, she, but two of the, the, the reasons she gives is, when we face fal- false accusation, what we want to do is assert our own righteousness in that matter. That I that that's not who I am, and you're you're like uh, you're you're trying to bring an accusation against my righteousness. But what she says is, even if that was a false accusation, you deserve so much worse than that false accusation. And there's plenty of things that you're not being accused of that are true of you. So, so instead of like immediately jumping to your own defense, you should actually just receive some of this, and some of it's actually good for your soul to receive a false accusation. And in, in moments where you actually think you, you, should be de- you should defend yourself against false accusation, there will be times where God will deliver to you someone to advocate for your cause on your behalf, not for you to advocate it for yourself. And in the times that he doesn't deliver someone to advocate your cause for you, maybe you should just receive it. It's really, really off the charts. I mean, <laughs> there's just some things Jeremy said this. I won't, it's, just, it's off the charts. It's off the charts. But that, I mean, I wrestle with that this week. I mean, our tendency to, um, to immediately assert our righteousness in what we perceive as false accusation and then to see this, to see this Jesus, to see this moment for him, to be silent in the face of all of these false accusations. And even when some of them are saying, even when Pilate and Herod are saying, I find no basis, I, I actually think these accusations are false too. And uh, even though he's done nothing wrong, what if I just beat him around a little? That, is that okay? So even like these these placeholders for justice are offering only unjust solutions. The only just solution here, because they're saying we're the ones who are, who are entrusted in positions to actually decide here, and they're actually saying, I find no basis for fall, I find no basis for charge, and their solution for that, would it be okay if we just beat them up a little bit? Will that pacify you? Even that solution is an unjust solution. And of course, the end is the most devastating 
the most devastating. Other comments? Brian in the back. Um, I have the mic Yeah. over here. Yes, somebody's. I had something to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Paulo. My name's Paulo, by the way. Third time mic user, so. First time mic user. Third time, third time. Number yeah, three. go ahead. All right, so I, I don't know if there's any significance in this, but verse 12 just like stands out to me. It says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. I don't know why they became friends. Yes. Was it because of like the awesome robe that Jesus is wearing yes. from Herod's yes. like fashion closet yes. that was like, yes. yo, dope robe, me and you are friends. Yes. I don't understand. Could you yeah. elaborate? Yeah. No, I, I don't know if any of you had this reaction, but you know when you read it, when you read a story and you've read it before and you're familiar and sometimes you can read a story 17 times and you realize 17 different things. My, this week, my first reading of the text, early Monday morning, and the one thing that stood out to me was that line. That before this, Herod and Pilate had been enemies, and this was the first day they became friends. And then immediately after that, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Everyone together. And just this eerie, I mean, it just, you read it and it just feels evil. The reconciliation of enemies, the reconciliation of separate classes of people, all reconciling around rage and hatred for God and the silence of God, the, 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 the disappointment in God. It's evil, so evil. Paolo can have my time. Too. <laughs> you got another one? No. Keep it going, okay. Okay. Um, I just, I think it's just kind of chilling the, um, kind of the expose on bad leadership here, just to, just to kind of like think as a leader. Yeah. We have these kind of, all together here, these three failures of leadership. Yes. And the first, it just seems like it's about power. They just don't want to give up power. They're threatened by Jesus. So that leads them to this bad behavior. And it's really, they're the catalysts, they're the primary actors. So somehow our lust for power, our refusal to give up power is just at the very heart of human darkness. Mm -hmm. And But then the folly of Herod, you know, he's just a playboy. Yes. And he just likes jokes and he doesn't take his role seriously and he refuses to accept any authority at all. Yes. He's just a, he's just a hedonist. Mm -hmm. And even the whole, I, this is the first time sort of reading like the mockery of Jesus wasn't spiteful. They were just jokers. Yeah. It yep. was like Jackass the movie. Like right. that crew yes. was Herod's That's crew. Right. That's right. Um, yes. It's so good. And they, they just, they think everything's a joke. Totally. They think everything's a joke. And, and there's a kind of abdication there, a kind of failure of leadership there. And mm -hmm. some of us maybe are like that. And then, of course, Pilate's just lack of nerve, his, his failure to do what he knows is right. He knows is right, yep. Um, under pressure yeah. of other people. And a, that, that, that kind of failure and that kind of weakness, it just, it just makes me want to kind of evaluate myself, yes. uh, you know, all three of those levels. Yeah. I think that's such a good word. And... Um, and, and the, to realize in the end, it looks as if in the end, it w it, 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 none of these leaders actually made the final sealing of the death of Jesus. The crowd demands it, demands it at the end. 
and it looks like it's none of them demanding it, but exactly as you said, they were the catalyst. They put them on this path. They didn't, they didn't decide to take responsibility for their own leadership and authority and try to, try to lead or sway the crowd in any other direction. Uh, and so they, they must be culpable too, maybe even a unique way. Well, let me jump in. I, I, what do we do with a God who refuses to conform to our expectations or our demands? And what I want to do this morning is I want to, if you're willing, I want to, I want to place ourselves in the, in, the, in the narrative among the crowd. And a- actually, I want to place ourselves in, uh, in the position of several characters. You see, the most repetitive feature of the text, and maybe some of you talked about this, the most repetitive feature of, this, of the text is this cycle of human demands on Jesus or human expectations of Jesus to act in a certain way to do certain things his silent refusal to conform to those demands or and expectations to submit to those things and immediately resulting in human rage and mockery and brutality wash rinse repeat wash rinse repeat the men guarding Jesus demand that he prophesy Tell, tell us who's hitting you. Tell us who's hitting you. And when he refuses to play their game, he was met with further mocking and further beating. When the chief priests and teachers are, are really demanding him, clamoring for him, answer our questions in the way that we want you to answer them. And when he refuses to conform to that demand, he is met with formal charges of heresy and an accelerated court date. And when Pilate is wanting, this is what Pilate wants. Pilate wants Jesus to defend himself. The, the, the subtle line here is he's, he's constantly kind of like waiting for Jesus to defend himself. He's abdicating his own responsibility and waiting for Jesus to defend himself. Advocate your own cause. And when Jesus is silent, he is met with flippancy and self-preservation from an unjust governor. When Herod, and Herod wants Jesus, he's even excited. Like, he, like, like Brian said, he's even like almost excited. I've been wanting to see this guy in a while. Maybe he'll perform us a couple signs. He's like a, a little like new shiny play thing, and it's just going to like do whatever I want it to do. And when Jesus refuses to comply with Herod's demands, he was met by childish scorn and public shaming. And finally, the crowd wanted Jesus to be king and not a prisoner. They wanted Jesus to lead an overthrow, not this display of weakness. I mean, even transcending this moment, this moment. I mean, in this moment, they're saying, save yourself. Save yourself. You said you were the Messiah. You said you were going to be king. You said you were were going to renew everything for us. Save yourself. Get out of this. This is humiliating. We gave so much time following you, putting our hope in you, and now we feel shame, embarrassed. But, but transcending that, even, even if you think about this week and, and, and just a few days earlier, uh, uh, celebrating his entry, and then to turn so quickly to this, they want him to be a king. And in the end, they cry for Barabbas, wh- whose name, and most of you know this, whose name, literally Bar-Abbas, literally means son of the father. And they're crying, give us a different son of the father. Not this one, who cannot do what he, what the basis of what he promised to us he would do. 
But this other guy who's a murderer, he's a zealot, he, he tried to lead a rebellion, he's, he's willing to get violent, he's willing to pick up a sword, give us that son of the father, give us that Messiah. That's who we want. That's who we thought this other guy was, and he clearly isn't. Give us Barabbas. Staying true to the will of God and not to the will of the people, Jesus was met by a death sentence. He was met by a cross. And of all the characters in the text who turn on Jesus because he refuses to be their shiny plaything, it is the turning of the crowd that is particularly disturbing for me. Was this not the same crowd just four days earlier that was laying down their robes and their garments for him to walk into Jerusalem? waving their palms, singing to him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, celebrating his entry, his triumph into the city. And it was the same crowd that sealed the death of Jesus. All the other players were catalysts who, who, who abdicated their leadership and put the crowd in this way. But get, get it clear, at the end of the story, it was not Pilate that killed Jesus. It was not Herod that killed Jesus. It was not the Pharisees that killed Jesus. It was not the chief priests that killed Jesus. It was not the scribes or the teachers that killed Jesus. They, 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 it was the crowd that killed Jesus. They advocated, they protested for the death of Jesus, clamored for it, fought for it, the death of Jesus. And Luke has always been intentional. This is one of those things about studying a, a whole a whole story, Luke, throughout his entire telling of the narrative, has always put the, 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 this kind of contrast between the elite and the people, the crowd. And he's always trying to explore the power dynamics and the social implications of the kingdom of God. And he's always trying to see how these two communities interplay, and they're never combined. He never refers to them as a whole collective, and here he does. Here he does. When Pilate gathers everyone, Herod, the people, chiefs and the scribes, and the people. Reconciliation somehow of all humanity and rage against the silence of God. And we are all the crowd too. I'm the crowd, you're the crowd. And I mean that in two ways. I mean, be before and, and, and it's, a, it's a tr kind of a traditional way to see this. I mean, before you even knew Jesus, before you surrendered your life to Jesus, before you heard about the story of Jesus and what he's done for, for you, for me, for us, for the world, before you did that, your sin actually made you culpable in the need for the cross. You understand? You, you too are responsible for the death of God because he had to pay not just for their sins in ancient Near East time, he had too to pay for your sins past, previous, and future. So you too are culpable. You're, you too are responsible for the death of God. You too are responsible for the driving of those nails. But that's not entirely what I mean by sharing in, being a part of, participating in the crowd. You see, after knowing Jesus, after walking with Jesus, after surrendering to Jesus and, and being with Him and knowing Him, there are times that we can react in anger and rage to his refusal to submit to our expectations of him. And in so doing, we participate in the mechanism that killed God. When we hold expectations or we make demands of God that we hold over him, and in so doing, we're actually asking him to submit to us, not the other way around. And over time, when, he, when, he, when we are met, those expectations and those demands are met with silence. 
Sometimes we can react in rage and disappointment and anger. Sometimes people walk away from God all, all entirely because of those false expectations. And in so doing, that kind of reaction is the mechanism that killed God. And sometimes we too are part of the crowd in that way. Some people participate in the shame and the bitterness of failed expectations for a short season, and some may do so forever. You know what we do when we're filled with rage at the refusal of God to meet some of our expectations or our inappropriate demands? We cry out, Barabbas. We go find a different savior, savior who promises, we think promises those things to us that he won't deliver on. Those things that we have our, our fist clenched around that we want from God or those ways in which we expect that he will act in our life or act in our microchurch or act in our ministry or act in our city and we close our fist around him and he's silent for a time. Eventually we may say, cry out Barabbas. Save me in the particular way in which I believe I need to be saved. And I think I have other outlets in whom to put my trust and my hope. When I first surrendered my life to Jesus, I was convinced of my own sin, my own need for a savior. Uh, I dug the whole like eternal life concept. It was cool. And I was particularly aware of ways in which I was destroying myself and I was attracted to the moral nature of Jesus, which might actually help rid me of some problematic habits I had in my life. But I still wanted to be cool I still wanted to have all my friends. I still wanted to have fun and a, per, a fairly narrow particular type of fun. And I still wanted to be the life of the party. And I didn't think all of these things were up for grabs here. I just thought I'll surrender my life to Jesus and he's going to help me deal with these destructive processes in my life. And I'm going to spend forever with him and that's awesome. But I can still be cool, amazing, have the same friends and have a lot of fun. So two weeks after I surrendered my life to Jesus, I went to my first party as a Christian. Yes. College party, freshman year, September, football season's going on, and I had two friends who were on a college football team, and one of their first games, they, they upset a ranked football team on a Saturday afternoon, and they decided to have a, like, like the football team decided to have this huge party, and I got invited to it because I had two friends on the team. So I go to this crazy house party after this football team beat a, a nationally ranked team, and I get there, and they're, they're, they're like, hey, let's grab some drinks. And I just said, I, I'm just going to stick with my bottle of water tonight. And they were like, what's going on? Why are you just sticking with water? And I said, I follow Jesus now. I follow Jesus now. So I'm trying to stick with water. I'm trying to undo these destructive processes in my life. And, and they said, uh, man, that's super lame. You're kind of being a buzzkill, and we haven't even started yet. It's like front end of the party here, like first five minutes of the party. And I just said, look, guys, it's okay. I'm just trying to follow Jesus, you do your own thing. But hey, you know what, what a great game today, guys. What an amazing game you had, and um, great catch, and let's just keep, this is fun. We can still have fun, this is fine. This is totally fine. And then, and then as the night goes on, the, this little, you know, every kind of social sphere I would find myself in, every conversation or corner of the house or room of the house, as these things go, I mean, the more inebriated people get, the more free they feel. And so uh, typically what would happen is the conversations around maybe like 11, midnight or something would, would start to turn and exist on the edges of racism and misogyny. And I'm 
drinking my water, and, you know, that it's getting late or whatever, and people start getting a little saucy on those edges. And I'm not laughing. And a couple of the guys are like, that, that aren't my friends, but they're these other teammates, they're like, what's your deal, man? You're just standing there. I mean, why aren't you? Everybody else is just dying laughing, and I, just, I was just like, look, guys, it's okay. it's okay. It's fine. I mean, we're here. We're good. I just, I'm a Christian, and I just think you're probably going to be judged by God for that. It's fine. <laughs> but listen, but listen, what a great game you had today, and <laughs> you caught that pass, and good job. And it eventually got to a point um, in the night, it was maybe like 1 a.m., and there was like this living room full of people, my friends were there, and then just like a bunch of these football players. And one of the guys, it got quiet at one point, and one of the guys pointed me out publicly and, and horrendously insulted me. Um, and I actually can't, I was trying to find a way to paraphrase what he said for you, but I can't do it without being horrendously inappropriate. So... But it was just this public, this, this horrendous public shaming. Like, you're the most boring, horrific, you know, like, why are you here? Get out of here. We need to have fun. We can't do that when you're here. Get, like, leave. And it was so embarrassing and shaming. And my friends that invited me to the party were just silent. And that moment was so damaging for me that I, I literally bailed on following Jesus for eight, nine months. And the rest of my freshman year, I was just like, that thing that happened in that living room, that's not what I signed up for here. And if, that, if that's what's part of this, like, uh-uh, I'm not, no, 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 no. I can just try to work on my own junk. I don't need Jesus. If this is what that's going to be like, I'm not doing that. And I just went right back to, like, everything else and was just like, this is not for me. Because I was holding expectations and demands on God that were inappropriate, unfair, untrue, and I was expecting him to submit to me. <laughs> Let me be this way. Let me do this thing. Let me hold on to this part of my life that I think is so important. And when it started to get uh, exposed and it was like, am I the Lord of your life or not? Or are you the Lord of your life and you just want me to be, come in and kind of be a vending machine for you? It was like, oh, hold on, hold on. I basically walked away from Jesus and, and, and reached out for that party atmosphere for nine months and said, I'll take Barabbas. Save me in the way that I particularly want to be saved. I'll take this instead. I'll take a different son of the Father. I've seen promising disciples and potential leaders do this with the desire for money, haven't you? Either walking in ministry and following Jesus just is not delivering the quality or status of life that you expected it would, and suddenly this is, this, this, this is not part of the deal here. I had an expectation I thought you were going to lead me into. I had a demand that I thought you were going to lead me into, and you're not, and you're silent about it. And the, and the rage builds, builds up, and I see people, I've seen people walk away from ministry because they want more financial status more financial comfort. And I've seen people who are really, really loaded. And they too walk away because they don't like to submit to Jesus the stewardship of those resources and how he would like for them to use them. They want to use them however they want. Both sides of the coin. 
expectations and demands on, G- on Jesus met by his silence and participating in the rage of the crowd against those expectations, I'll take a different one. I'll take a different Barabbas. I'll take a different son of the Father. Give me Barabbas. Save me in the way that I want to be saved. This is not what I expected. I've seen promising disciples and fruitful leaders do this with the desire for a relationship. Holding an expectation that if I live a certain way, do a certain thing, be as faithful as possible, certainly God's going to deliver me a spouse. And then three, four, five years later, all you're receiving is the silence of God, and certainly a life of singleness is not an option in the Bible anywhere and not like a, like a thing that people do or can do or possible doing. And suddenly we start to get angry, disappointed, vengeful at God for not actually being faithful to us in a way that we thought he promised he would be. And then what do we do? We reach out for Barabbas and we turn toward Tinder, yes? And, we, and what, I've seen so many promising, amazing disciples and leaders lower their expectations for another human being and just jump into relationships just because they can't take it anymore. And what they don't realize is they're reaching out for Barabbas. Save me in the way that I want to be saved. And that's so devastating. I'm, I, not just people who are like, like, like uh, 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 this, guy, this, this person, this guy or girl is like a, a believer, but they're not very, they don't, they don't really have any of the values that I have, or they don't really care that much about the mission of God. But even lowering it to the point of like, I'm not even sure if I need to be with a believer anymore. Just someone, someone nice, caring, loving, committed. Save me in the way that I want to be saved. This is not what I expected. I've seen promising disciples and leaders do this with comfort, steering away from challenging leaders, challenging churches, challenging content, challenging friends, challenging community, community only to submit to pastoral and empathetic leaders as the only good and right type of leadership. Only being a part of positive energy churches and only reading your best life now books, cleaning, saying, give me Barabbas, give me Barabbas, save me in the way that I particularly want to be saved. I did not expect this. I've seen promising disciples and fruitful leaders do this with the desire for ministry success, and maybe the most is this one. I've seen organizations that take Jesus out of their vision and values and bylaws in order to gain more access to public funding and a bigger platform of inclusion. And they see that as a way to like, what we really want, what God promised us is like this huge impact on the world and, and you know... And, and suddenly, it's like our commitment to Jesus is becoming a big problem with money, with people coming, with people liking us, with the development of like partnerships, that kind of thing. And then, and then deciding, actually, we, if we just rip all this out, we can actually do the things that we thought we were going to happen without him. And grabbing for Barabbas. Save us in the way we particularly think we should be saved. And hold, tightening our grip around these expectations that we thought he promised us. But a big organization taking Jesus out of the infrastructure isn't any different from a house church deciding to stop doing Bible study because non-Christians don't like to come. This is a problem. This is a problem. That people don't like coming. People don't like being a part of our thing. But what is it that you're offering people? It's not just, it's not just community and love and friendship. You're, you're offering something, the transformative witness of the kingdom of God and reconciliation to God through Christ Jesus via the revelation of God through the text. It's okay if you don't print out like an university manuscript study and do this big thing, but gosh, a devotional would be great. That'd be awesome. 
I've seen leaders clench their fist around a thing they thought God called them to do long past when God had released them from that work or was clearly leading them to pivot to do something slightly different. But they thought they were called to do this particular thing, this particular method, and their identity and their value and their perception of themselves just got so wrapped up in it that God is actually doing a totally different thing over here and inviting them in, and they just say, no, I can't. I can't. This thing that I'm doing, this is my Barabbas. Save me, save me, save me, save me, save me. And in the same token, I've seen leaders walk away from a thing that was really difficult, really messy, a transient community, a sporadic ministry, lots of failures, very messy, but they were still called to it. They were still called to it. But just didn't, just, just didn't, didn't think that pain and sacrifice and working with human beings who were messy was actually part of this. And holding those expectations and those demands over God. And when he, res- when he responds silently and does not submit to our demands and our expectations to, to have that result in rage, anger, and running away. See, the worst, most damaging, and most unloving thing that Jesus could have done for the guards, the chief priests, Pilate, Herod, the crowds, or us would be to submit to our demands and our expectations. Can you see that? Can you see that the most unloving, unhealthy thing he could do for us is to submit to those things that we hang over him, the ways that we ask him to be our shiny new toys? And the most loving thing, the most gracious, the most merciful thing that he could do for us is to be silent to our inappropriate demands, to refuse our unhealthy expectations, and to be Lord, to be who he is with us not who we want him to be, to be who he is, to be Lord with us. And only when we submit to Jesus as Lord will our hearts learn to authentically cry, it is well, it is well with my soul. Come what may, come, come disappointments and expectations that I've been holding on to that were wrong, come come demands that he's not going to come through on, come what may, come a situation in life that I didn't expect and yet here I am, come what may, it is well with my soul because he is enough. Without my expectations and my demands, he is enough. Worship team, if you guys want to come up, I just want to close with this. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I live in uh, uh, right across the street from Belmont Heights. And we've started to, I don't know if it's the right terminology to say plant a microchurch. It's probably, it's probably better to say we're trying to plant the gospel and see if a microchurch happens. That's probably a better way to see it. So we're just trying to do outreach and build relationships and uh, uh, have spiritual conversation and explore if there's openness or a person of peace. And then maybe a microchurch will come. Um, and so we've been doing that for a few months now, building relationships. And I told you a story a couple weeks ago about D, but... Uh, there's, there's this after-school program that happens in the community center right in the middle of Belmont Heights, and they do it every single day from 3, three o'clock to 5 o'clock after school. But the kids, they, they basically want to come from 3 o'clock. They have to stay for 30 minutes to get their snack. So they come at 3, and they stay till 3.30. They sign their name on a paper, and they get the snack, and then they leave. They're like, this was cool. This was cool. So, so I, I'm never able to come because I'm always at work or whatever, but Dee kept telling me about this, this kid named Keenan. And Keenan would come, and, he, and he, he, he comes at 3 o'clock with all the other kids. He's a little bit of an outsider, a loner. Nobody talks to him. All the kids actually make fun of him a, a little bit. 
they all leave at 3.30 and he stays. And he just messes around in the computer lab for 30, 30, 40 minutes. And sometime, every single day, sometime between four o'clock and five o'clock, he'll go to this piano that's in the, the open community room and he'll play two songs and then he'll go back to just messing around on the computer until five o'clock. It's the same two songs every day. And she said, he, she think, I, don't, I didn't really know him that well at the time, but she said she thinks he's maybe like high on the autism spectrum. So he exudes, uh, uh, occasionally exudes like evidence of brilliance, but he just doesn't talk to anyone. Just doesn't want to talk to anybody, has trouble talking to anyone. I mean, some of the, some of the staff actually thought he was mute when I talked to them about, about Keenan. There every day, three o'clock, 3.30, and then uh, between, sometime between four and five, he'll just play a couple songs. But I never got to see him because I'm always at work. I'm never, I'm never home uh, you know, before five o'clock. So Thursday, maybe a month ago, I had an, a meeting in Ebor. That meeting got done at like 4.15. And I just thought, maybe I can just swing over there. And I might catch him. So I just, I just drive over to that community center, hop in. D's gone. But there's a maintenance guy cleaning the kitchen right next to the community, uh, the, the open room with the piano. His name's Lewis. I said, Lewis, is Keenan, has he been here to play yet? Did I already miss him? He said, no, you haven't missed him yet. So I just sit down and I get my computer out. I just start writing something. I have no idea when he's, he's, in, he's around the corner in the computer lab. I have no idea if he's going to play. I assume he is because they say he does it every day. And eventually he comes walking into the room, very quiet, head down. I don't even think he looks at me. He just sits down and pops open this really old, out-of-tune, rickety piano. And Lewis tells me, hey, I don't know what the second song is that he plays. I've never heard of it, but the first song, you're going to love it. You're going to love this song. And I said, okay, that's weird. And, and Keenan starts playing, and uh, I don't know the first word. Some of you might have to help me, but it's like, uh, uh, it's like Sweet Caroline. It's what, it, what are the first words or whatever? I don't know the first words, and, and Lewis just starts singing it at, right from the beginning. And I'm just like, and then he just keeps playing, and Lewis is trying to get me into it. Like, you know, you know, you know. And I'm like, dude, I only know the chorus. Just wait for me. Wait for me. Wait for me. I'm going to get there with you. And there's, there's like nobody else in the place. I didn't think there was anybody else in the place. And finally he gets to the, to the chorus, and it's like, sweet Caroline. And then Lewis goes, bah, bah, bah. and then we're, we're just singing. We're going crazy. It's just us three. Except I look through um. I look through the doorway and then through like two doorways and another level of glass, there's this uh, like 70-year-old administrator and she can hear us and we're like, we're going crazy in there. Sweet Caroline, ba ba ba. Good times never felt so good. And then that lady looks at me through this like 100 feet of like glass and doorways and she goes, and she goes, so good, so good, so good. I was like, you, you're with us. We're doing it, we're doing it. And you could, you, you could, he didn't have any facial expressions, but Keenan's like, you, you, he started to play a little harder and a little bit more like, like he was like, this has never happened before. Let's do, like, let's go there. Let's do this. And then he finishes up that song. We just went crazy for a little bit. It was weird. And uh, he finishes up that song, and then Lewis is like, I don't know what this next one is that he plays. And he starts playing. And I'm like, I recognize that song. I recognize that song. But. I, didn't, I, I couldn't get it because maybe I hadn't, hadn't heard it played classically before. Um, but he got to the chorus, and immediately it clicked. And I, guys, I did not even talk to the worship team at all this week. And immediately it clicked, and it was like, it is well 
with my soul. Just the classic traditional way. And immediately I just started like, I I just started weeping like, and I just started like, I went over and sat, he was facing this way on the piano, I just sat next to him, I just started singing. It is well, it is well with my soul. And he's just, pl- he's just playing away. And he says, start smiling on the piano. Just playing, playing, playing. And Lewis comes up to me. He's like, you know that song? And I was like, dude, yes, it's an amazing song. It's this old hymn. He's like, I've never heard of it in my life. And I was like, let me tell you the story of that song. 1800s, late 1800s, there was this guy named Horatio. And he, he had a wife and he had four daughters and he had one son, his youngest son. In 1871, his son, his two-year-old son, his only son, his youngest son, died of pneumonia. And then just, just a couple years later, there's the great, the great fire in Chicago, and he had all, like almost all of his investments in real estate that were burned up. He was in like financial catastrophe, 1873. And because he was in such a financial catastrophe, he had to send his wife and his four daughters on this trip across the Atlantic to Europe. And he stayed back to try to like, he was trying to deal with all these, all this uh, financial ruin that they were dealing with. So he sent his wife and his daughters on the trip without him. He was going to follow them up. Four days into the trip in the Atlantic, they had this boat wreck between two, two liners. 266 people died, drowned from that boat. All four of his daughters were drowned. Horatio Spafford. His wife, Anna, was rescued from, that, from, that, uh, from the wreckage and taken all the way to the shores of Europe. And she sent a, a telegram back to America to Horatio. And all it said was, saved alone, what shall I do? And Horatio immediately jumps on a boat to get across the Atlantic Sea to be with his wife, Anna. And when they're crossing over the site of the, of the crash where his daughters had drowned, the captain calls him up to the, to the boat to tell him this is where it happened. And it was in that moment that he wrote on a pad, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? Lewis looked at me and he said, he said, whatever Keenan has, that's what I want. I mean, I don't even know Keenan's story, but Lewis does because he's been a maintenance man at that place. And, and as soon as I told him the meaning of that song, something about him knowing Keenan's story and watching him play that song, he broke. He was like, what does Keenan have that I don't have for it to be well with his soul? Whether you're rich or poor, married or single, kids or empty nests, success or failure, sick or healthy, living room bursting at the seams or nobody shows up to a single one of your outreaches, savings account or no savings account, air conditioning or no air conditioning, music or no music, comfort or sacrifice, fun or not so fun, platform or totally unseen, is it well with your soul? And if the answer is no, take heart that it is not God who has remained distant from you. But perhaps it is your expectations that have led you astray. Would you let them go today? Would you let them go today? The expectations, the demands that you have over God that you're hoping that he might submit to, would you let them go today and let him be Lord? He is enough. He is enough. And with him as he is, not with your expectations of him, it will be well with your soul.
on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you do so in remembrance of me. So this morning, I invite you to come and to receive the death of Jesus, to receive the salvation, to receive lordship to let go of your expectations and your demands over God, to stop trying to get him to submit to you, but to let go, to let go, open up, let go. Let him be him. Let Jesus be Jesus. Leave those things up here and come away knowing with him it is well with your soul. I invite you this morning, the elements given for you.